Thanks for joining us on Runners Radio. We are brought to you by Runners.com. Runners Red Zone, we make you a better runner. And Runners Marathon Movement, we guarantee you marathon success. Enjoy the show. Radio. Today we're over Skype and we're having a beer with the great man Brady Trelfall. He's one of the leading marathoners in the nation, but most people would know him from different things like Inside Running Podcasts, Run the PB Coaching, and just a general ambassador of the sport. He's a true student of the sport and he knows more about running than most. And today's going to be great fun for both me and him, I'm tipping. Welcome to Runners Radio, Brady. Thanks, Rick. Looking forward to being here. Listen to a couple of your uh, interviews previously, and you've got me through a number of uh, runs and stuff. And uh, yeah, looking forward to having the opportunity of talking running for the next hour or so. Yeah, look, Braves. For those who don't know, he's one of the great, the great men of the sport. Really, really laid back. Really laid back, and you can hear it straight away in his voice. But look, just, just always open to talking to anybody. Anybody sees at any track meet, any road meet. Um, it doesn't matter where it is in the world open to talking about running and, and where we can take it and how we can always look to improve it. Brady is the host and producer of Inside Running Podcast with Brad Croker and Julian Spence. Julian Spence, you might know, was a previous guest on the on the, uh, on our show. We by the, time, by the time that finished, I think we'd have a fair few. So this one will be make, – we'll make sure we keep this one straight and narrow, great man. Firstly, I'll go through some of Brad's times, and I know that all these are um, very untapped and he's got lots of ceiling on him, but – We'll get through the five. 5,000 at 1409, 10,000 of 2934 at Zatapak last year, half at 6616, the marathon 21953 in Berlin in 2018. And that's where a lot of, uh, I guess, Berlin was the, the start of a lot of this inside running, I guess, uh, media has, is where it is now, buddy. So take us through just backwards, I guess, where it all began. And I know you're an ex footballer as well, and, and where, the, I guess, the, the love for running began. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Um, where did it all begin? I guess it, it began for me late in life. Like I started running when I was just about two weeks short of my 16th birthday. So come to it pretty late and think I'm still involved in running now because I did come to it pretty late and it was a, a decision that I wanted to get into running rather than getting into running because I was naturally good at it as a junior or because my parents were pushing me. Um, so I, yeah, as you said, I was playing footy in Bendigo I was pretty small, getting pushed around a bit, not actually spending that much time on the footy field and not kind of enjoying it at all kind of thing and and gave that away. Started skateboarding for a couple of years, probably got caught up in the wrong crowd. Um, I'm sure, you know, if you've ever kicked around a skate park or anything before, you know the kind of crowd I'm talking about. And then my old man, he was involved with the Bendigo Umpires Association. He was the the president, actually, and he's in the Bendigo Footy Club um, Hall of or Bendigo Footy League Hall of Fame. Actually, he's the only umpire uh, that's ever been inducted into the the Bendigo Footy League Hall of Fame. And he kind of said to me, "You should come down, do a bit of boundary umpiring, get paid, you know, fifty or sixty bucks to throw the ball in." And as a 14, 15 year old, that sounded pretty appealing. So. Went down to umpires training, started doing all the kind of time trials and all those kind of things that you do and pretty um, quickly figured out that the quicker you can run, the better games you get to umpire and uh, the better games you umpire, the more you get paid. So all of a sudden was motivated to, to work on my running and to get faster and 
I remember we used to have like a 3K time trial every month, I think it was, and just um, put a few targets just on some different people's backs and just wanted to, to tick off people. And throughout that season kind of trained, we'd usually train on a Tuesday, Thursday, and I started training on you know, the other nights of the week and maybe getting out for a bit of a jog on Sunday as well as a bit of recovery and just kind of slowly building the Ks up. And by the end of that season, I was one of the quicker boundary umpires and then decided to give athletics a bit of a go. And yeah, the rest is kind of history, kind of didn't have a lot of natural talent to start off with. I think my first um, my first 1500 metre race, actually, I remember it quite well because Joel Salwood, who plays for the Cats, he came out of Bendigo at the time as well and, and a good product of Bendigo Athletics. He um, he was in the 1500 with me. We went to school together and I was actually told to, you know, when they ask your name, like AV Shield stuff, when you, yeah, yeah you, you kind of, they ask your name and they kind of want to know what time you could run because they've got to put you in a, in a certain heat. And my, my coach who I just started working with a couple of weeks before told me, make sure you tell them that you think you can just break five minutes for um, 1500. So they put you in the B heat. We didn't have a lot of depth in Bendigo and the guys come out and kind of said, Brady Trailful, which one's Brady Trailful? And I put my hand up and he said, oh, what, what time do you think you can run? And I said, oh, I think I'll run about 4.58. And then um, Joel kind of yelled out to the guy and said, no, nah, that's bullshit, Bill. He's been running at school. He'll run way quicker than uh, 4.58. And so he put me in the A heat and then, I remember I ended up coming fourth and ran 4.40. Joel was just behind me, actually, so it was good to get a win over him. But, yeah, that was my first ever race, a 4.40, 1.500, and then ran a, I think it was like a 10 or a 9.50 kind of 3K. And then I just kept chipping away, like, really. This is when I was 16 and probably didn't start really running well until I was 25, 26. And now, um, you know, now I've strung a few years of decent training together. I'm, I'm starting to get the best out of myself. That's a great way to start because we always talk about uh, not specialising and mm. you, know, you, play, you play Joyce Rules and even Boundary Umpire. For the listeners overseas, um, give, give them a 37-second uh, summation on Boundary Umpire. Yeah, you run up and down the field when the uh, game of AFL is getting played, which moves pretty quickly. And back then we just had um, two Boundary Umpires, so one person's on one side of the field, the other's on the other. When the ball goes out of bounds, you blow your whistle, you get the ball, you throw it back in. And probably the hardest bit of boundary umpiring actually is when the goals are kicked, you're the you're in charge of getting the ball back to the middle. So you've got That's to yeah, you kind of got to wait for the ball to come back from the crowd, and then um, you got to get the ball, and then you pretty much got to sprint it back to the middle, and you throw it to um, the the guy who throws it up in the middle, and then all of a sudden, then you know no recovery because five seconds later you're back on the gas, and um, yeah, I used to I remember like panicking back in the day because you'd never want to. Because, you know, ball gets tapped out from the middle, goes to someone, bang, they've kicked it 30 or 40 metres. And all of a sudden, you've got to cover that space in, you know, two or three seconds kind of thing. Like the ball travels pretty quick. So it used to be a bloody hard training session. And and sometimes, and it's a two-hour game. You get a break every 30 minutes. But you want to talk about hard fartlek sessions, go umpire a game of uh, AFL on the boundary and yeah, get your fit pretty quick. So in a way, I was kind of training for running without even knowing it, and, and that's probably why I um, you know, could, could although it took me a while to get some of my times down, I was, I was certainly training without actually knowing that's what I was training for. You had a strong base, that's for sure. Yeah. Listeners, that, that are overseas, listeners that are overseas, look, it is the biggest sporting ground, I think, of any sport, any field. There's no bigger sporting field than the Australian rules ground. And I reckon on nearly every second episode, we somehow get onto Aussie rules, don't we? Mm. Uh, this is, it is the greatest game in the world. Now, Braids, you, you, start, the, so you start your career with Bendigo Harriers. 
Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yep, old man, because I was kind of um, just looking at all the cross-country country results when I was doing the boundary during the winter and then kind of thought we didn't have much depth in Bendy at the time and just kind of said to the old man, I reckon I could do some of these races against these people and be a half-decent chance. And so, he, yeah, he took me down to the local Harriers running club and met um, John Burke and Neil McDonald. They're probably a pr- couple of famous names around the Victorian athletic scene, kind of um, the pro circuit, we call it, the handicap running. And, yeah, they kind of got me immersed in that and, and had a lot of fun there as well. And they were great. They were super patient with me like here's this 16 year old kid I knew I didn't have much speed and all I wanted to do was run fives and tens and you know when those kids start talking about running halves and 15 k's and things like that because you look at some of these results and it's it's kind of easy in a way like it's you start saying oh I could win the under 18 section of Gold Coast 10k but come 40th overall and you start Mm. trying to find easy easy wins and then they said to me, no, nah, you're running fours, eight, and 15. Um, you might do the occasional 3K. And that was, it was, it was, I hated it at the time because I'm like, oh, I could run the under 25K and come fourth, but instead I'm coming, um, you know, 10th. I remember racing guys like um, Brenton Rowe, Tyson Mann, uh, Toby Rayner. Like I'd get smoked. I remember Toby Rayner lapping me like in a under 18, three or 5K. Like I was, yeah. He was a prodigious talent. And Toby actually, uh, he went to my high school down this way. Um, prodigious talent, Tobes. But he, yeah. he, was a career, he was a career runner. So you're, you're coming against to get to Toby Rayner from Glen Huntley. Um, and yours very, your training age is very, very raw. Yeah. Um, and some of those kids were, were state and national reps for six years before you even started. Yeah. And we'd go, I can remember like Berkey and Mac had given me workouts like be six 300s, like walk 100 between and, you know, they'd always be about like getting a good feel for it, feel the bend and feel the rhythm and like they'd never tell us splits, Um, they'd never give us like paces to chase, it'd always be like just effort, we just want you to do these 300s at 8 out of 10 effort, get the feel of running and yeah, like got smoked up my whole junior career but and kind of just made a couple of like state teams, like I'd be the guy coming in 10th and would take 12 guys for the the under 20 Victorian team or something like that and then you'd get to nationals and come you know 50th kind of thing but um yeah they they so much respect for them because I think sometimes junior coaches get a bit focused on short-term success and they said no we want you to be a runner when you're 25 30 35 and and hitting your hitting your best then and yeah to their credit they set me up for a, a great running journey so true, mate. And we're both—I know—we're both connoisseurs of American um, distance running coaches as well. And and all the good ones there, like Berkey um, and and some of your guys, just—it's about long game, playing the long game all the time. And and clearly, there's a reason why you're still heavily, heavily involved in the sport and um, have, have run all these great times over the last 24, 36 months. And you probably can go go back to those days in Bendigo and say, well, well thank Christ, I wasn't—I wasn't encouraged to run. Um, balls to the wall every session and tried to race every bloody Saturday. Yeah, and just the friendships you developed as well. Like, looking back now as an adult, they had a really good skill of putting young um, groups of guys together. Like, I'm not sure if you remember Josh Nolan from the pro staff and Cody Williamson. And, like, we just had this really small, tight-knit group and we just like you'd almost take a bullet for each other. Like, it was just – and it was fun going to training on Tuesday and Thursday and um, – yeah, nothing was hard. Like we never did that gut running session, so you didn't want to go back. It was always about having fun and having a bit of a community amongst it as well. So yeah, hats off to those guys. And and I think sometimes as juniors we um 
we just expect that's the way it is and it's not until you get older that you start looking back and really respecting what they've done for you. 100%. You can look back in retrospect with it. It's such a privilege that, yeah, and you, you, you got to, it's, it's, it's luck. It is luck that you, you landed in Berkey's hands because, yeah, unfortunately you're right. It's, it's all too common that junior coaches get carried away. Culture and enjoyment has to come first. I totally agree. Yeah. So, Braves, when did you start getting into, I guess, the pro running um, and, and that kind of stuff? Because this is where we, we first met. Yeah, I reckon that would have been, um, oh, I'm thinking 2007 kind of thing, just after like high school, kind of as a as a 19, 20-year-old. And, um, yeah, it used to be really fun. We used to go away every weekend to different races. Um, the crowds used to always be huge. I was pretty fortunate that most of the time I'd be off the back, so I'd wear the red singlet. So I kind of had that extra advantage of, of having the crowd kind of cheering for me, even though they didn't know who I was. It's kind of pretty common in the pro circuit that, you know, you barrack for the person in red because that's uh, obviously that's the fastest person in the field and he's got the biggest handicap. And, yeah, it used to be fun, it used to be enjoyable. I used to love the the betting aspect of it as well, that you could, you know, you could do your warm-up and then go past the betting ring and kind of have a look at your odds and, you know, sometimes you'd smile at it and think, oh, no one gives me a chance here and I, I think I'm about to win this thing. And other times you'd be, um, you know, chip on the shoulder kind of thing going, I'll show you guys. So it was, um, it was interesting and the commentary, like even that, like it's, I remember doing races and you kind of always got half an ear on the commentator and what they're saying about you and the atmosphere fear was really good and um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to win, you know, kind of most of the big races in a way, like I won the prestigious two mile down at Noble Park, uh, oh, sorry, the 2K at Noble Park, won a mile at Stall, won the eight and the mile at Bendigo, won a mile at Maribyrnong. Um, won the what was kind of the one of the richest miles at the time at Stonington when they bought, kind of pumped up some money to work on their gift and um, yeah he got a second at Wangaratta in the two mile was a bit unlucky that day but um, yeah it was really exciting and fun and it was just a good culture once again to be a part of. You've just named every single one of the main gifts I would imagine so um, the the Herb Hederman you, you you skimmed over that but that's a very famous race and 140 years of history and. As an athletics purist, uh, I think everyone would know the Herb Hedeman mile at Stall. So, go well, what year was that, mate? Oh, yeah. You're really testing me, Rick. I probably should know that. I'm going to get you. You backmarked the two. So, I met you in the two mile. You back. You backmarked the two mile in 2010. I reckon so. it was 2012 or 2013. And it was really funny. And, and it depends on who you talk to about Stall, but half the time when I tell people I won at Stall, I think they jump to the assumption that I ran dead for a whole season and I um you know come out and and won it like I really play the game whereas I didn't I'd probably ran the Herb Hedeman five times before I'd actually won it and because I was often running pro stuff and amateur stuff it wasn't like I was avoiding the track to kind of show my um show my form and things like that and I remember like I I used to just always get smoked up there like you just never in the top 10 they'd bring the Kenyans over a couple of times and that just you know beat everyone pretty easy and there was always handy back markers and I remember kind of nominating and getting, or maybe they'd tap me on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, do you want to be in this field? And I kind of said yes, because I thought if I don't say yes, like 1500 for me, I'm, I'm kind of like the middle marker there. So um, in that field, because that was elite guys coming in, like our Olympians and stuff like that, they'd bring in for that stuff. And I kind of thought I'd say yes, because you know, it, maybe they're not going to ask me the next year if I say no. So said yes. I remember driving over with my old man and he kind of said, what do you what do you think? And I'm just like, nah, just had no form. And um, 
yeah, got into the, I remember actually walking past the bookie ring that day and I think I was 12 bucks. Like I wasn't giving myself a chance. No one was giving me a chance. I just was out of form kind of thing. And I kind of had a nice handicap where um, a lot of people in front of me were the favorites. So I just kind of made the decision that maybe put in a f- quick first 100, 200, get on the back of them and then just see how long you can stay with them kind of thing. And I just stayed there, stayed there, stayed there. And um, Jeff Risley was the back marker that year. And he was, he, if you watch the video, he kind of went out pretty slow. Like usually the back marker's got to run a four minute mile to win it. And I think he split like a 60, 61 and kind of didn't get carried away. And then coming out the back straight, I was sitting in about Oh, I'm going to say about fifth, but I was three deep on the inside, boxed in, nowhere to go. And because we're coming into the bend uh, 200 metres to go and we're kind of getting past with people coming wide, the guys running in front of me started moving out off the line so they'd keep the guys going wide around the corner who were coming on the outside. And I just saw this tiny little gap. And in pros, you're actually not allowed to pass on the inside because if you obstruct someone, you get disqualified straight away. And I kind of, um, yeah, snuck straight up the inside. I kind of put my arms really close to my body so I wouldn't touch anyone. And I kind of went from fifth to first and hit the 200-meter mark in front. And then I just remember running eyeballs out. And um, I heard the crowd absolutely go crazy with about 30 meters to go. And that was Jeff Risley swallowing up the whole field and (laughs) swallowed up everyone bar me. And I... I crossed the line and turned around, looked over my shoulder, and, and Jeff was staring straight at me because if there was another ten meters, I was gone. And then, it, and then it's crazy because then all of a sudden you got Asada kind of up saying, you know, you're with us until you need to go to the toilet, and you've got uh, live TV presenter kind of straight in your face, and it's like shit. I was, uh, I wasn't even expecting to kind of pick up any money here, and all of a sudden all this stuff's happened so quick, and I think that's probably you know a testament of being in that race for five or six times and just having that innate feeling of how it pans out and how to run it and I just got a lucky break in the back straight and, and made the most of it so it was um yeah one of those experiences that same thing at the time you don't realize um how important having a stall stash, stash is like you can kind of have a conversation with anyone who's involved in distance running in Australia and you tell them that uh you've got one of those hanging in your shed and they they give you the singlet that you're racing as well they actually send that to you in the mail and they give you the the bullet of the starting gun so um yeah, it's pretty pretty special and, yeah, sentimental in a way. Yeah, it is, mate. The Herb Hedeman is one of my favourite races. Um, Peter Donovan probably would have called that as well. You would have listened to that a few times, that last furlong short. Oh, yeah, Moose has given me. He reckons I've just done <laughs> done the whole video. I've just, uh, you know, there's lines going through the screen because I play it for too long. I'll tag you in it on Facebook after this, actually. it's uh, I do remember it vaguely, but please do because oh, I, um, I love that shit. Hey, um, tell me about that. So... You, the thing about the VAL stuff, and we're not going to spend too long on this, but like athletics in, in Australia, uh, for those guys overseas, is very much club versus the pros, unfortunately. And the two big sports in Australia is still footy and cricket. Footy in the winter, cricket in the summer. Horse racing in there in the spring and autumn. Tell me about, look, how good were the local local viewers get it, just actually pumping up these VAL meets and saying, oh, let's go down and watch Braids in the mile. And we get to bet on him, we get to have a beer and watch him. Like, the atmosphere is magnificent, but I feel like it doesn't get enough press. Yeah, I think small towns, though, I think small towns get around them. Like, I think it's different in the cities and stuff like that. But I know um, in Bendigo, the Bendigo Advertiser, like, if you had success on the pro circuit, they'd write about it in every 
um, you know, yeah, in their newspaper afterwards on a Monday or Tuesday if you had a win or got a place. And then leading up to the Bendigo one, because that one was linked with the um, the Madison, the bike racing carnival as well. And that's another thing they do well. They piggyback on sometimes other events. I know we were just talking off air before about the Rye um, gift and they've got the local carnival like next door at the same time. So it kind of brings an atmosphere, uh, kind of two for one kind of deal in a way. And yeah, you're right. They were special. Um, the media got around them locally. You got to look at some of the prize money there as well. Like the sprints are usually got, you know, gifts on which are worth five, ten grand kind of thing. And and then you've kind of got these distance events where there's there was always an eight hundred. There's a mile. Sometimes there was a two mile. There's you know three hundreds and four hundred meter handicap races. And most of the races you're talking about have got you know, five $1,000 kind of prize money in total for the small kind of events. So you're looking at these gifts and they've, they're probably spitting out 20 or 30 grand every weekend. And there's yeah. not many track races. Like we might have the the Melbourne Track Classic, which might pay out, I don't know, five grand, six grand for the night kind of thing once a year in Victoria. And then you've kind of got the fun runs that, you know, a Melbourne Marathon pays out um, pretty good money. But other than that, Compared to the the amateur stuff, compared to the pros, the pros um, are doing something right to get that sponsorship money there. And then you look at store, like that's huge prize money everywhere. And we've we've seen how that's um, you know now come up nice and high for the females, matching their gift for the males as well, which is the right thing to do. So something's definitely happening right there, and it's and it's more appealing. Like if you, if you said to us when we were you know twenty year olds in Bendigo, would you rather go out to the local athletics track and you know maybe run a fifteen hundred, and then you got to wait around three hours to run an eight hundred, and there's seven people in the stadium, and it's pretty uh pretty boring or do you want to go to a gift and they'll put you in the red and you've got a chance to win a thousand bucks and there's people hanging over the fence kind of yelling support for you it's uh pretty easy which one you'd want to do i agree but yeah look it's it's one of those things that is such a big part of australian athletics history and um i'm, I'm really stoked with the the equal prize money as well at stall and i just think if we can continue to support them i know it's hard because i feel like some athletics clubs probably don't want to go back and like don't want to have their their athletes mix in and matching but i think there's still a massive place for it and if we can get around it, it it'd be really cool i've been thinking about sorry to interrupt rick but i've been thinking about it a lot with this uh covid stuff and all these races off and it gets you thinking about like if we had to start from scratch again what would we do and i was thinking about the other day like I think athletics, we missed a huge opportunity to kind of maybe quarantine 10 or 15 of our best runners. Let's get them into handy. Like, okay, let's say we hand, let's say we quarantine Melbourne Track Club for the last eight weeks and we just say, yep. guys, let's, let's find some money for you. Let's find some sponsors. We're going to do a live um, stream of a handicap race once a week and we're going to have betting on it and you can tune in the live stream. And, and those results are going to be, um, you know, kind of pulled apart and then we're going to change the handicaps of the week after so so one saturday you tune in in between the races on a saturday maybe you get a collab going with the the racing channel or something like that or sports bet or whoever and you say you know stewie's given gregson a 10 second head start and then geordie williams is another five seconds in front of that and then even chuck the girls in there as well you know jen's starting 45 seconds in front of that and they're they're going for 2k and then the next week it might be 1500 and then it might be a 3k and then a 5k and it would have been a cool thing to just keep us um, interested in what the elites are doing and give them a chance to make some money. And, um, yeah, it's it's really got me thinking about what events would people relate to these days. Because, obviously, when we see track races now, like I raced in the Melbourne um, Track Classic 5K in, when was that, maybe February, March, and, like, 
there's 20 of us on the track, but it's really only out of two people. Like everyone knows Stewie's going to win it and maybe Sam McEntee or Ramston are going to give him a run for his money. But everyone else is just making up the numbers. Whereas this would have been a cool thing to to get people involved in and stuff. And yeah, I don't know. It's probably, I'm just thinking far, far-fetched stuff here, but it, it would have been cool. I don't think it's that far-fetched because you've got that much like sport. Everyone's got Foxtel, KO, everyone's got everything. And you're right, there's live streams, there's everything. So people would definitely watch that. Yeah. Um, and look, there's nothing, look, having been able to bet on it does make everyone, look, I'm in about four different punting syndicates. So the ability to bet on something, and then that's a social aspect as well. And then you talk to your mates, so who do you like today? And and that's and then everyone knows these names that maybe some people out of athletics wouldn't normally know the Ramsdens and the even the Sam McEntees. Like I think most people would know Stewie, but a lot of these athletes that are bloody world class aren't talked about. Yeah, Whereas and, if, that, if, that, if that kind of stuff get because grows legs, all of a sudden people are talking about seven, eight, nine, ten athletes a weekend. Yeah, and even like just a you know three or four sentences on each individual as like a form guide kind of thing. Like it would have been cool to say, "I'm loving this." Oh, it'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? We're, we're working. I can't say too much at the moment, but at Inside Running, we're working with a um, an event or a club to kind of in an athletics track to put on an event, and it's going to kind of have a team component. And that was one of the things I said that you know we need to profile these athletes to let our listeners know and our um, audience know who these people are, so they know who to cheer from. And I, it could be made up or not made up stuff, but kind of fun facts about them as well. That this is what footy club they barrack for. This is their five kpb. This is a, a wacky kind of fact about them, and it just makes them real in a way to connect with the audience in some way. Definitely, and um, the mainstream sports do it. The footy record, all these things, the, the tangible stuff you could hold and read. It's really special, and the form guide, of course, um, is a lot of people's bible on a on a Friday afternoon, Saturday morning. That would be perfect. The way you guys do the inside running podcast, I'm not going to jump ahead just yet. It does bring um, these these elite athletes into the spotlight where they should be, and they were in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Australia. But take me through that middle part of 14, 15, 16 after the Heatman, because um, you started to get heavily involved in different, um, I guess, aspects of athletics. And take me through that part of your life where you were, I guess, transitioning into the longer distance stuff, and you, you decided to run your first marathon. I think you're already qualified as a teacher and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll get the advent of the podcast over over that journey. Yeah. So uh, after uni, moved up to Echuca, Moama. I've been up here ever since. So that would have been like 2009, 2010, like transitioned up here and, and was just running like the domestic kind of road series in a way. Like I'd go down to Launceston 10 and run a 10K down there or go up to the Gold Coast half every year and, um, you know, get up to Sydney for maybe Blackmore's in the half and things like that and run the Athletics Victoria kind of winter season. I was running for, for Bendigo and then Geelong for a few years. We won the premiership, uh, I think, twice out of the three years I was with Geelong, and that was really good. Just being surrounded by guys like, you know, Mottram, um, Troopy, Julian Spence was there at the time, Ryan Christian, Harry Smithers. Like, we had a really good uh, team, and obviously that's why we, uh, we won those premierships there, and that was good. And um, just running like consistently, consistently, like I'd run 66 for half marathons, you know, two or three times a year. And then I'd run low thirties for 10 Ks. I'd, I'd got a couple of starts at Zatapak a couple of times there and just uh, missed out on breaking 30 minutes and then made the decision in 2015 to, to step up and try my first marathon at Melbourne. And um, probably went in a bit too, bit too cocky. I thought, oh, I can run 66 minutes pretty consistently. And Double that, that's 2.12, add six minutes, that's 2.18, easy done. Should be a good de- debut. And then um, 
Moose, who we've spoken about, talked about a couple of times. He, uh, he, I actually paced him in 2014 and took him through in 70 minutes and he went on to run 227. He blew to pieces a bit and I kind of used that as a bit of a practice run. Like I wanted to see what it was like under the MCG beforehand. I wanted to experience what that pace felt like. I thought it was a really good way to just learn as much as possible before I had a crack at it at 2015. And yeah, he took me through in 70 and I was smiling and waved him off the road and thought, this is good, I'll pick it up from here. And then blew to pieces coming up St Kilda Road. Just didn't respect the distance and nutrition. Like I didn't even know how many carbs I should have been getting in or hydration and that stuff. And all of a sudden, 320s turn into 330s and 330s turn into 350s. And I'm crawling up uh, past the the Shrine of Remembrance there, running kind of like 410s. And yeah, held on for 226 and, and seventh overall. But man, it was a kick in the guts. Like it was almost like the marathon absolutely rinsed me and kicked me in the chin and kind of said, let's think twice about uh, doing this for an event. And yeah, kind of stepped up there and, and then did another 12 months of training, changed my training slightly. I remember getting some advice off uh, Josh Harris and kind of implemented some of those like Canova type workouts and went over to Berlin with him and ran 221 high. So I kind of ran uh, close to a five minute PB. And then really, I've just been chipping away ever since trying to get that marathon down, doing one or two a year and um, stepping down into some halves and, and tens and the occasional five as well um, on the track. So, and just trying to just, yeah, started working with Moose. Most of that stuff I was just talking about then was with Richard Gleisner guiding me. He was a 217 guy out of uh, Ballarat and 29 minute guy and a 65 guy. And he was, we had a great relationship there for a long period of time and kind of kept me injury free and kept me improving. And then just needed to switch things up a bit and he was a really good mentor as well and would always say like there's there's more than one way to skin a cat let's let's try things different and that's when uh Julian and I were doing a lot of talking and and we started the podcast as um pretty similar PBs I think we we're both 224 guys when we started it and he turned into a 214 guy and going to the world champs and I was a 219 guy wondering if I'm ever going to get quicker so I kind of respected how he'd improved over the years and and thought that we have pretty similar t- talent and um, we put in similar kind of hours training and got similar kind of, uh, you know, ethics around, you know, what's required for hard work and being disciplined and getting the training done and, and thought content-wise as well, it's going to be an interesting dynamic having your, your co-host of the podcast, you know, writing your program as well. So, and then, yeah, we've had a bit of success in the last six months around, yeah, getting my 5K down to 14.09, running 29.34 at Zadapec. Um, I remember running past you actually at the half marathon at Melbourne. I came third that day in in 66 low and then um, yeah went down to Hobart to run the Cabri half marathon as well and, and got the win down there in a pretty, pretty tactical race with uh, Dave Ridley. So and now this COVID stuff's happened and I haven't been able to race, but I was, I was getting ready to rip a, a marathon over in Rotterdam, but just got to wait until races back, back open up again. That's yeah, a lot of good info in a short period of time. I'm going to go back over that. Moose did mention that you were robbed at Rotterdam in our interview. So he did say that you definitely would have absolutely crushed it. And the shape you're in, and, and if you look at most of these PBs, like the, the Zatapec run was a cracker. 29.34 was an absolute cracker. Was that 14.09? Was that this year? Uh, that was the end, like two weeks before Zatapec at the state yeah. 5K champ. So. You had a fortnight, brother. 
No, that was that's that's great running, and look, you're coming back, and then so the the marathons. We'll, we'll touch on this, and I want to go back to the Canova and Josh Harris stuff for a bit. Um, the marathons, you've ran a two nineteen fifty three, but you've ran two twenty low as well. Is that right? And how many times have you done that? Yeah, I've ran um, six marathons. So um, like I've ran a two nineteen, a two twenty, and then maybe four or three two twenty ones, and then wow. my, and then my two twenty six. So take out the two twenty six, which was a bad bad learning on the first day i've been pretty consistent but just haven't had that breakthrough yet and yeah hopefully that's still to come well like liza said and i love that saying there is more than one way to skin a cat but canova is a big idol of mine massive um and i knew harris was a big proponent tell us what you started doing and and when you started to feel some of the benefits in that phase then that canova phase and then we'll i know we're jumping around the joint but we'll, we'll talk a bit about tell me your tales and that kind of stuff yeah, um, I remember because, and this is something important to say here because you don't want to listen to this and think you've got to go out and um, try this Canova stuff and try too much of it because it is. Oh, Massive base. Yeah, and, and yeah, you've got to be almost have done the training to be able to do this training. So take all this with a bit of caution, and and we kind of did that. We my first time I started doing the Canova stuff, I did a workout of um, it was five by five k at marathon pace. So I'd kind of hit those five k's in sixteen forty around like three twenty k pace, and then I'd float a k in about uh, three forty five. So in total, I'd end up doing thirty k at probably three twenty five average. Um, and I remember the other one I did the first time I started experimenting with this stuff was uh, 10k at 340 pace with the main purpose just to tire your legs and then run 20k's at marathon pace. And I remember finishing both of those and I'd never done stuff like that before. Like Richard had come from the real uh, Monteghetti kind of system, like out of Ballarat where you're doing like hard fart legs and you're doing deeks quarters and you're doing hilly tempos and, and most of the stuff's over in kind of 15 to, to 30 minutes in a way and then you do your two or two and a half hours on a Sunday. So, you know, fronting up for a 30K session where you're going to be hitting 320s for most of it is uh, pretty daunting, but I think you also get the confidence out of it. You know that when you get to the marathon and race day that you can sustain that pace. And I think that was, yeah, a big com- component of why I jumped from 226 down to 221. And and throughout the years, I've just started. So like in, so I did two of those workouts the first time. And now in a marathon build-up with Moose recently, I might do, um, you know, maybe six or seven of those in a in a. 12 or 14 week block leading into a marathon i guess while we're on this uh braids we'll, we'll go to the methodology that moose is i guess transitioned you into and and it's just good to have someone else to listen to for you i guess like you could probably write your own planning now but it's just good to to have moose to bounce off how long has he looked after you at your training buddy uh so it would have been like maybe august september of 2019 so um yeah it was just before our son was born and yeah, I was just kind of, I just went through this real down patch in the winter of 2019 and I'd go to AV races and just get, just get smoked. Like I couldn't come, I think my best result might've been like 15th or 18th in an AV winter race. And, mm-hmm. and these are races, like I remember coming third at Ballarat 15K and then all of a sudden I'm coming, you know, 15th and it just felt super hard and getting beaten by a lot of people. And so I actually made the decision to yeah mix things up and I just wanted to take, because Richard and I would have this relationship where he'd send a program and then I'd give my feedback and change things up a bit and send it back to him and he'd sign off on it and then we'd kind of bounce like that, whereas I just wanted to say, nah, I just want to give this to someone, say someone I trust as well, that's super important, and just you know let them put the time into creating the program and then giving it to me and then 
really. I just put it on the fridge and whatever it says, I just do it. I don't even second guess it because I could I could write it myself, but then that, that takes too much of my headspace and then I start questioning if I'm doing it right. And in this world where we've got everything on Strava and Instagram and so much information, sometimes having too much information is is not the best thing. And, and Moose is the kind of guy that can just be, you know, sit down, shut up and, and do the training. Yeah, clarity is king, I agree. What's Moosey? Um, I know he's got he's got some great philosophies, uh, Moose. What, what's his major thing with you? And, and tell us about, I guess, give us an average week. Uh, say you were going to Rotterdam, maybe five to six weeks out from that, what would an average week be in the life of Braids? Yeah, okay, these are real good uh, weeks to pick out these ones. So you got to, yeah, take into account that I've already done the training to be able to do this training. So um, we do two workouts a week, usually on a Wednesday, and then the workout would be on the Sunday in the long run. And um, everything else really is to recover. So no medium long run Um and just really just jogging to take the body over to, to get ready. So I jog Monday, I jog Tuesday, sometimes double, like I might do an easy eight in the morning and then an easy 10 in the afternoon, which is which is pretty easy time-wise. Like it's easy to find, you know, probably an hour 20 over two runs and it's pretty easy on the body. Um, and then on Wednesday, we do a longer kind of uh, workout. So uh, one of the weeks I remember doing like Kenyan fartlek for an hour. So two minutes on, one minute float times what are we talking, times 20, which is a massive, uh, I remember when I did that, I thought, oh, this is going to go forever. And it did. Like it's a, 20 is a lot of reps to do. And I was kind of rolling at probably 305, 303 kind of K pace for the for the two minutes and then floating at kind of like 330 K pace. And at the end of it, it come out at like an hour at maybe 315 or 316. So um, that would be a Wednesday, and then your Thursday, Friday, Saturday would really be to recover, and then you'd get get ready for these big Sundays. And Sundays, when Moose is writing your program, are like the day. Like you look at your program, and I just get excited. Like I love the process of of ticking these big weeks off, and there's a lot of stuff in there where um, we might do like progressive long runs. So like I'd do 10k at kind of four minute pace to warm up, and then I'd change into my my race shoes or my lighter shoes and then maybe do 5k at 320 uh 325 and then 5k at 320 and then 5k at uh 315 and then maybe flow to k and then do two by 2k at 310 and then all of a sudden you do your cool down as well and you might be you know might be at a 40k morning and you come out of it averaging 325 330 um and sometimes you'll do stuff where it's just like 95%. He speaks about this a lot, like this. And this is what I think works best for me because it gives me confidence as well. So I'll go out and do, say, 30K or 25K at 320 to 22 pace or 23 pace. And you're just getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And like, yeah, you're getting the physical benefits from that, from doing 30K at close or 35K at close to your marathon pace. But you're also your mind like it's that's you know an hour 45 nearly two hours or whatever it is practicing going through bad patches going through good patches um grabbing your drink bottles off your car you know and trying to then get your drinks down and then um it almost feels like you're doing the first 35 or 30k of a marathon because even though the effort's a bit slower 
you're going into them heavy and you've got no crowd and you've got no atmosphere and you're on the on the back streets of a Chukamoama um, nailing these workouts and then it just gives you confidence. You finish those and you look back on your, your Strava or your or your Garmin Connect or whatever and you just go, you know, one of the Sundays leading up to Rotterdam, I think I did a marathon in 226 and it was a training session. Like there was 15K of work where I was above four minute K pace. And then you just go, that's 226. And it was, it was wow. easy. Like it was, and he builds it. So the first one of those you do is, is obviously easier than the fifth or sixth one you do. And then you just get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And yeah, you just, and I think practicing the nutrition is important as well. Like I think people go in a bit underdone sometimes and um, I'd practice my carb loads in the days leading up. I'd practice, I'd know exactly how many carbs per hour I needed to get in in the workout, and I'd pick my drinks up when I'm, you know, like I would at Rotterdam if it's a 5k drink table or an 11k drink table. Like that's when I'm getting them, and I've had them set up beforehand. And I think, well, we didn't get any proof, but I think the practice was gonna really make us go well in Rotterdam. But yeah, now I'm just hungry to to let that show some other time. And yeah, you've, you've got the next decade or so to, to absolutely continue to touch that ceiling, great man. That's I love that. So thanks so much for going deep. Um, and the big stuff, and Moosey did mention that kind of a week when we had a chat. And it is, it's it's awesome. And it is, it is a little bit different. It's a bit different to the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays, the traditional Australian stuff. But the specificity of it is golden. And I guess this is why people like Canova, uh, Brad Hudson and these kind of guys have been really good with their their um, their long marathon uh, preparation specificity and their, their different blocks, their periodization is very different. Mm. We'll touch on that before we get onto the media stuff. Who's some of, I guess, your give me your three favorite coaches, um, local or overseas, that I guess you've because you are a very good coach yourself, mate, um, at Runner PB, of course. Give me some of the three coaches that you you probably take a lot of your, I guess, um, yeah, the art and the science from. Mm. Yeah, good one. It's um. It's a hard question because you take different bits off everyone in a way, and I'm not sure that there's. Just say five or six then, because I'd, I'd struggle for three as well. Already. Yeah, well, one of the and I think Nick Bedeau. I think I don't think he does anything special with his program, and when we interview his guys and girls on our podcast, there's nothing really new there. But I think Nick Bedeau and in the Melbourne Track Club, there he instills this belief in his runners. And I think that's very important. Like I think sometimes we overlook the workouts and the scientific or, or sorry, we spend too much time on the science and the and the workouts and the case per week and the VO two max and the thresholds and all that stuff. And we forget about just how important it is to to have belief. And you see so many products who who are good runners and then they become amazing runners when they go into that system. And I think the culture he's um, developed in there um, is something that really needs to be respected because you look at a guy like Jack Rayner, like Jack and I were racing each other five years ago and now he's running, you know, 10, 16 or something around the 10 and he's, uh, you know, going to represent Australia for the marathon, just running just over 211 and he's pretty much, he's unbeatable in Australian soil and our road circuit kind of thing, won the Commonwealth half marathon and he kind of was, he was just a good AV and a good domestic runner and he went to a world-class runner and I would say that a lot of his training didn't change it was probably similar stuff but he got this belief instilled um to him from from nick and i think he does that does a really good job there um i've learned a lot from moose i've learned a lot actually we've got a good network of coaches that run to pb because there's kind of like 10 or 11 of us and like collaboration's really important so um 
You know, I've learned stuff off Jack Davies and Andy Buchanan, Andy especially because he's out of Bendigo and we've done a lot of running with each other over the years and he's uh, he's an absolute animal on a cross-country course. So if you ever need advice about what's a good, like, tough session, like what makes people strong, and he's got these, um, he's got these, like, hilly, it's called, like, pretty much we call it Andy Buchanan's, like, hilly threshold sessions where you'll get people to do hill reps and then you'll stop the hill reps and do a threshold and then you'll go back and do some more hill reps and then you'll finish with a threshold again. Like, it's just stuff that for a cross-country course would just absolutely make you into an absolute animal. Um, obviously, Lydiard to an extent, like the the godfather of running coaching. I've got a couple of his books in my uh, bookshelf there. Percy Serity, like, same guy about instilling belief. Like, he just, I wish he was still alive so we could have interviewed him and I wish podcasts were around back in his day and he could have had these, you know, long-form three-hour interviews that would have been, you know, still alive now on the internet. So a couple of his books in there. I Percy might have gone five or six hours. Mate. Oh, yeah, it would have been great, wouldn't it? And then yeah. um, obviously, like, the Canova stuff as well about that, um, just preparation for the marathon in a way. And, yeah, it's something we... Like I probably learn off Brad and Moose more than more than anyone because we spend an hour every week talking about running and training and um, you know picking apart each other's training weeks. So you know they're probably two guys who I've learned a lot off over the years as well. Gee, you're good at setting me up for these segues. Yeah, tell well. me about, that is very very good from you. Hey, tell me about tell me your tales because I, I did listen to a few of these back in the day and they were magnificent. I remember a cracker with Trev Vincent, uh, a Glen Huntley legend, and a few of those guys. It was really good. And so tell me how it all came about. That was your original podcast, I think. That was, yeah. It kind of morphed into this beautiful thing we know now as Inside Running Podcast. Yeah, Tell Me Your Tales was born out of a uh, a frustration of nobody um, kind of covering athletics in Australia in a way. And I, as I said before, I live in a small town and I listen to podcasts all the time. Like it was, I'd listen to Joe Rogan and Rich Roll and Will Anderson and, I'd put them in for an hour run and it just, you know, it was great. I would pass the time and I would, um, you know, get a laugh out of it. I'd learn something out of most of them. And it was one of those things that I was like, why isn't anyone doing this? We're like running in Australia. Like, where do I go to get the content on Sinead Diver or um, Ali Pashley or Julian Spence or Brad Croker or whoever it is? I just kind of wish that someone would do the same thing. And I also, at the time, wish that someone would do it in my local community. Like, there's some interesting people that get around to Chukamoama, and I wanted to know, you know, what makes a local councillor, you know, the CEO of our councillor council tick, and the local musician, and just local prominent people in our um, in our town. So I, you know, come up with the idea to start telling me your tales. I um I didn't really want to do it. Like I'm a pretty introverted kind of person and kind of live a very simple life and um I can kind of I can I can turn this on what you're hearing now, but but this isn't my default and I think being a school teacher as well, you get good at being able to talk to different people and um getting the most out of them kind of thing. And yeah, I just uh pulled the trigger. I remember I was sinking beers one day and probably had one too many beers. So I'd, I'd already purchased a microphone. I'd, I'd had the iTunes channel fully set up and I was sinking beers and was probably a bit cut. And I just started sending out a couple of messages and <laughs> telling people, hey, I'm starting this podcast and I'd love you to be on it. And they all wrote back saying, that sounds great. Let's do it. And I'm like, shit. The next day I was like, I've actually got to do this now. And I remember at the time I was reading um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, um, 
Oh, it's called something magic, but it pretty much talks about creative, big magic, I think it's called. It talks about creativity and how ideas come to people and then they go to other people and you've got to act on your ideas and all those kind of things. And I just thought, shit, do it, record it, put it out there. Because it's a bit of a risk. Like when you put yourself out there, all of a sudden, you, yeah, you put yourself out there for for praise and positive comments, but you also put yourself out there for, for negative stuff to come in as well. And um, as I said, I kind of like laying pretty low up here and just started interviewing runner mates, really. It was me going through my, my contacts going, yep, Moose, do you want to come on? I'm going to interview you. And I'd met Brad at a couple of races, so I interviewed him and ended up doing 80 episodes of Tell Me Your Tales. That was a weekly podcast that would come out every um, every Wednesday, I think, where I'd really just sit down and we'd have a conversation about um, whatever, really, like it sometimes was running related, other times we just talk about life and philosophies and, uh, you know, what books we're reading and all that kind of stuff. And then I came up with the idea to do a side project where we would call it like the Road to the Berlin Marathon podcast. So it was under Tell Me Your Tales and I'd had Moose and Brad on the podcast in previous episodes and I pretty much just said to him, like sent a message saying, hey boys, I reckon us three, we're all going to Berlin in 2016 to race it, or 17, sorry. This would be cool if we just got on the podcast and talked about our training weeks and just uploaded it and all of a sudden that's where like the numbers went from 1,000 people downloading a week to 3,000 people would download that show a week. And then we uh, finished Berlin, that was the end of the podcast series, and then I remember flying home from Europe just drafting an email to those boys saying, hey, I reckon there's something in this, we should start a a podcast and away from Tell Me Your Tales and at, for a while there I did both and then Inside Running just got too big and that's where I spend all our attention now and now Inside Running turned into it. We still recap our weeks but we interview people, um, we talk about running news. We, we're we pretty authentic and we're honest. Like we've just been this week in particular, we've been getting in heaps of trouble actually and, and phone calls and things like that about you know, offending some kind of some people and they weren't happy with our comments because we don't beat around the bush. Like we call it how it is. We don't represent any brands because, um, you know, we're we're funded by our Patreon supporters. So like it's all in-house kind of thing and we're, we're, we'd like to think we're a show of the people, the runners in Australia, and we're trying to promote Australian distance running as, as much as we possibly can and, and make that connection between, um, you know, the 30,000 people rocking up for Run for the Kids how don't they know about Liam Adams? Like, what can we do? And the, the 600,000 parkrunners in Australia, what can we do to tell them about Stewie, who can run parkrun in, or parkrun distance in 13 minutes and five seconds? And when you see Sinead winning Melbourne Marathon and breaking the course record, here's an hour content you can listen to about Sinead's life. And that's really what we do. And, and we're lucky because we're involved in running that these people feel comfortable in talking to us and they're honest and they're real and... Um, and now we follow their journey because we'll have someone like Jack on for an interview and then we'll talk about Jack in six months' time when he runs well at London. Then we'll talk about him at New York and then we'll talk about him when he's doing Breaking 2 so the listeners constantly get updates about what these people are doing and um, we didn't start out to, to make money or to get a huge audience. We just And we always tell ourselves that, that we do this podcast the way we want to do it and if you want to listen to it, good, but we... Um, yeah, we we just I don't know, we just get on. Really, we talk shit about running every week, and it's cool that people get entertainment out of it. Oh yeah, it's it's a it's a one of the best sporting podcasts you could ever listen to. Listeners, just please put in your ears because it is like running and athletics is the purest of sports. These boys are so raw and real. Three genuine uh, blokes, very different in personalities, but it just works so well. And you would not 
you would not know they're in different states, like or obviously similar, like what you, yourself and Moose are Victoria. But how many hours your hours separated? You, you think they're just having a beer around a table? Tune in next week for part two with Brady Trollfall.